Hey everybody, welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Ed, it is good that we are together. It is good that we are together. It is good that it is Friday afternoon. Um, this has been a bit of a long week. It's been a, lo- a bit of a long week for... Tell me, Ed, how has it been a long week for you? It's been a long week for me in exactly the same week ways that it's been a long week for you, which is we, I don't think as everyone listening to the show, I'm sure by now knows and is sick of hearing us talk about, um, you know, we migrated the site back to Substack this week and there have been some wrinkles. There have been some wrinkles. So, uh, yeah, so we have, I guess listeners of the show, if you're not aware, uh, Ed and I have a website, uh, called pillarcatholic.com where we make news on the internet and, um, that website (laughs) I don't know why I'm telling you that. Uh, yeah, so we decided to move over our website back to Substack. So in September, we so we launched our pod, our thing, our uh, the pillar, like um, on Substack two years ago, and we decided to move it off of Substack last summer for reasons, and for different reasons, we decided to move it back. Basically, a lot of the stuff that we couldn't do on Substack before <laughs> turns out. Thank you. We we can do it now, and so we brought it back because there are other benefits, not least of which um, they have a good customer service department, which. Yeah, and we want to provide good customer service. Exactly. So I don't want to rehash yeah. all that, but you asked me how the week has been. It's been a long week, a lot of late nights, a lot of, uh, you know, um, things that are, are preying on my mind. But I think we, you know, we've we've got to the final list of bugs that need to be shaken out. And I'm confident by Monday morning we'll be back to normal, which will be great. So that's been my week. But I have been holding on, JD. I've been holding on for this conversation. This okay, has been, I'll tell you. This has been the, you know, the sort of festial pinata dangling at the end of my week. It's like, when we get to the show, when we get to the podcast, everything else will be done. It'll be Friday. We're going to be, we're going to be okay. We're going to listen to some good music. We are going to listen to some good music a little bit later. I'll tell you, the pod, the, the Substack stuff has just been background to me. Not that I've been working on it, but I've been trying, I've been working on it bunch of reporting projects, all of which I think are important. Like this happens to me, you know this, obviously, because I think it frustrates you. But uh, what happens with me is that um, sometimes I get stacked up on reporting projects that are important and that are my kind of reporting projects, like that aren't something that in our, the way that we distribute things are things that you would work on or aren't something that Michelle or Luke would work on. They're just JD projects. And so I've got to do them and they're important and all of my want to do. But sometimes I just get stacked up where I've got a few of them going all at the same time. And I'm trying to sort of like get through the interviews of a bunch of them and then sequence it in the way that I can actually be not just getting bogged down and doing interview after interview, but at the same time also producing news. And sometimes I just get in this spot where I'm being extremely productive, but not actually getting to the, in that I'm doing the reporting for a bunch of different projects, but I'm not actually getting to the end of any of them. And uh, I feel like for me this week, like I, I've produced some stuff for this week to be sure, but I feel like for me this week, a lot of the week has been just um, being in the weeds on three or four stories of import that are important to me. And actually, if you remember, I was supposed to take off a couple of days this week to write a story that has a really important story that I really want to write that has been like languishing for months since I did the reporting because I just have not had the opportunity to like take two days off from everything else and, and write it or two and a half days off from everything else and write it. And I wanted to do that this week, but just things are, things are coming at me fast, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And I'm trying to sort of just spin a lot of plates on a lot of different sticks as plate spinners do. Yes. There's, <laughs> there's a bit of that, um, but it's fine. It's Friday afternoon. We're... It's Friday afternoon for you. I've got, I actually have, I have a hard stop, uh, an hour after we started the podcast because I have, to run to to do like actually two or th- possibly three interviews this afternoon so i'm just sort of uh moving right along well i i'm sure you'll enjoy those you're you're a very good interviewer i, I was saying this to someone last night over dinner that you you have a you have an excellent interviewing manner and an interview technique and you genuinely enjoy talking to people so i'm sure that oh, be a roaring success that's kind what prompted you to say that um i'd probably said something disobliging about you and you know, then I wanted to. You know, <laughs> then you felt that you should. I felt I should, you know, pay you a compliment as well. Um, but anyway, no, I I would like to talk about some news because that will be a break for me. That'll be a little mini holiday for me, JD. If we can talk talk about some real news, talk about what's going on. So something I wanted to talk about is you sent me a statement that I had missed. 
that came out of um, the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend, or is it South Bend, Fort Wayne? Bishop Kevin Rhodes, the bishop of that particular part of Indiana, released a statement in relation to the University of Notre Dame. It was a column. It was a column. Well, and I think it's important. The reason I point this out is not to be pedantic, but I actually think it's extremely important to note that Bishop Kevin Rhodes published this week a column on the University of Notre Dame. Did he? Was this diocesan newspaper? In his diocesan newspaper. And what did he say? First, we'll talk about what he said, and then we'll talk about why I think You've read it more carefully than I, um, but he basically said that he was very, very disappointed um, in the decision of one of the departments at the university to invite a so-called abortion doula. Mm-hmm. Um, now, my wife has had a child, and and so I am familiar with, generally speaking, the word doula. I think I understand what that means. I don't know what an abortion doula is. That sounds macabre. I, I don't really understand how, how that works. but I think it's someone who effectively, I guess, helps you to have an abortion. And so Bishop Rhodes wrote a column this week in which he said, um, hey, there's been a controversy surrounding the invitation of an abor- a so-called abortion doula to Notre Dame to advocate for an abortion, and I want to talk about that. Um, he said that Notre Dame's Gender Studies Program and the John J. Riley Center for Science, Technology, and Values were hosting a lecture series on so-called reproductive justice, and in the context of that lecture series, um, they had invited this person who had become controversial, you know, sort of nationally controversial, who has identified, or has identified herself as uh, an abortion doula. Um, I'll read to you a little bit from the the column. Um, Rhodes says, the voices featured, including abortion providers and advocates, consider abortion itself to, in, in this lecture series, the, the, the voices featured, including abortion providers and advocates, consider abortion itself to be an essential tool for pursuing justice, equality, and fighting discrimination. The lecture series is meant to persuade and form hearts and minds for, quote, social change, which is why many of its ac- invited participants are activists rather than academics. Here's here where we get to it. The lecture series appears to be, again, this is Bishop Rhodes, appears to be an explicit act of dissent from Notre Dame's admirable institutional commitment to promoting a culture of life that embraces and affirms the intrinsic equal dignity of the unborn pregnant mothers and families. Then he says that there are many things at Notre Dame which uh, are pro-life and that the organizers of the lecture series admit as much and have emailed registrants information about Notre Dame's pro-life resources and information. But he goes on to say, um, look, uh, inviting an abortion doula to provide an unrebutted case for abortion has prompted a great deal of criticism and concern from around the country and in our diocese. I share these concerns and consider the decision to feature such a speaker on campus to be both intellectually unserious and unworthy of a great Catholic university. And then he goes on to sort of talk about the mission of Catholic universities and those kinds of things. He says there are good things that are happening at Notre Dame, but this is uh, not one of them. You know, it is, of course, newsworthy that a bishop, the bishop of um, Fort Wayne, South Bend, Indiana, would speak out about these issues at Notre Dame. But, Ed, what is it that you, you, you would like to talk about this? And I, having summarized it, would like to give you the floor to uh, uh, note what you would wish to note. Well, uh, so I'd, I'd like to note this in, in relation to a second statement that came out from a different bishop this week. And this was a, this was billed as a statement, although it was carried in also in the diocesan newspaper, in the Catholic Herald of the Diocese of Madison, Wisconsin. And it was from the bishop there, Bishop Donald Hying. Um, and, and it was basically a, I, I thought, a, a fairly sharply worded, but measured uh, and thoughtful critique and expression of shock and concern over the conclusion of the German Synodal Way last week and their carrying of resolutions to provide blessings in churches for same-sex unions, for the ordination of women and transgender persons, uh, and and various other controversial things that would, in some cases, seem and in other cases absolutely be contrary to the church's teaching as well as the, the instructions of the Holy See on these matters. And I thought it was interesting to put the, the sort of um, Rhodes and Hying statements side by side. Because in, in one sense, they look like two bishops doing much the same thing, which is saying there's an issue in the news. Uh, I have an opinion about this, and I think I should deliver my opinion in a way that people can understand it and of anywhere they can read it and everything. And I think, broadly speaking, we we expect and we want bishops to speak out 
publicly. People are always so people are always saying, why well, you know when something when an abortion when an abortion doula speaks in an unrebutted manner at a Catholic university, where are the bishops? Why don't the bishops speak out about this? And so I think yeah, many people are often as we're clamoring yeah uh, for bishops. And so when I was when I was thinking about these two statements, I I'd, I'd been talking to different people about them. Um, someone told me said effectively that um, they were more in favor of Bishop Rhodes' statement on Notre Dame than they were Bishop Hying's statement on the German Synodal Way on the grounds that Notre Dame is in his backyard. And this is, you know, it is right and meet for the local diocesan bishop to um, have opinions and views and give those opinions and views and have them be corrective opinions and views in public when necessary for a major Catholic institution in his backyard, whereas what what profit the church for the Bishop of Madison, Wisconsin, to comment on the German Synodal Way you know, on the other side of the world, and those bishops aren't going to, you know, they haven't listened to letters of concern and warning and reproof from the Holy See or from, you know, mass signature gathering efforts from bishops from across the world. So what's a statement from the bishop? So wait, the feedback you've been hearing effectively is great that Bishop Rhodes would speak about an issue because the issue is in his backyard. Less great, perhaps, that Bishop Hying would speak about an issue when the issue is across an ocean. Is that right? E- effectively. I mean, it wasn't, no one was saying, you know, Bishop Hying shouldn't or has no right to do it but just in a question of you know right. what's more appropriate for a local bishop to be doing they they liked the you know the general consensus was the roads one was more likely to have some kind of effect and represented better episcopal engagement with important things proper to his diocese and the hying one was just kind of you know another voice in the wind and i, I tell you what i fundamentally disagree with that i did too and that's why i wanted to put these two things side by side and talk about the other <laughs> oh, shows. Man, i actually we, found it, we're in agreement about our fundamental disagreement possibly but i well we can disagree about other things later um but yeah i found i i take the exact opposite view and i i mean i mentioned this in my newsletter today uh, a little bit with regard to to Hying's statement which is i the german synodal way is global news it is a global event, whether anyone likes it or not. And the Germans have pitched it to be a global event. I mean, throughout the Synodal Way, all of the documents were presented in different languages. There was live translation available for people to listen into the Synodal sessions. You know, they wanted the world watching. They very self-consciously and expressly said, we are doing this to set an example. We want dioceses and other places, other bishops' conferences to do as we are doing, um, pitching themselves as basically an alternative to Rome. Uh, More to the point, if if, if you will, what's happening in Germany is the action of a subset of the members of the College of Bishops, right? So what the College of Bishops is what? The bishops, people who are, those who are validly ordained bishop and are in communion with the Bishop of Rome. And um, what's happening in Rome is an action of a subset of the College of Bishops. But because being a member of the College of Bishops means something real and significant in our ecclesiology, because the communion of the College of Bishops is a fundamental predicate of our ecclesiology. I think when when groups of bishops act, it's actually probably incumbent. I would argue that bishops might even have the duty, whatever they think, I, I would argue that bishops might even have the duty to sort of offer theological reflections, admonishments, exhortations to one another, and the, the history of church, the church says that. Now, I actually, to be perfectly honest, that I, I haven't read Hying's thing. I can imagine what it says. And, you know, I think there's a set of people who would say like, oh, you know, American conservative bishops are just trying to sort of um, distract from problems at home or not pay attention to problems at home or sort of just like um, scale everything into Germany. And, and I get that. But I really think that whatever they think, there's some value to bishops, to far more regular engagement among members of the College of Bishops about significant theological things. Uh, I would agree with that, although that is not the reason why I, I, I was so in favor of it had nothing to do really with the um, communion of the College of Bishops with each other and the, the sort of, you know, dialogue therein that you outline, although that is good. Um, I think I think t- trying to dialogue with the German bishops is a fool's errand at this point. They've made it pretty clear they're not interested in dialoguing with the Bishop of Rome, let alone the Bishop of Madison. Um, but I, I think, you know, what you said about some people might criticize it as saying, you know, well, they're, you know, they're trying to shift focus onto Germany, distract from problems at home. The German Synodal Way is a problem at home for the Bishop of Madison. It's a problem at home for the um, Bishop of San Diego. It's a problem at home for the Bishop of any diocese in this country. The, the, the German Synodal Way is actively seeking to disrupt the global church 
I mean, that's not my editorializing. That is their characterization of what they are doing. Like they want right. to disrupt yeah. the global Catholic Church. They want to disrupt its teaching office. They want to disrupt its disciplinary norms. They want to, you know, the and and so that is a problem everywhere. I mean, they've they've made themselves a problem everywhere. And I I have no doubt that there are Catholics who know something, perhaps not everything, but something about what the German way, the German synodal way has proposed and done. And they would like their bishop to speak to those concerns and tell them what's going on and what should they know about this and what does he think about this. Um, but also I have no doubt that in dioceses all over the place, the the ideas, the proposals of the of the German synodal way are, are growing like darnel among wheat. That, you know, there will be Catholics who say, well, if the Germans are going to bless same-sex unions in churches, why can't we? I, you know, either we can do it or we can't. And it plants a question, which is, again, what the Germans want. Um, and I, I think it's perfectly right uh, and appropriate, and I, and I would argue increasingly necessary for the Bishop of Madison, Wisconsin, and the Bishop of anywhere else to speak to his flock, to make publicly known what the reality is of the German Synodal Way and its conclusions. I think it's a, it's a relevant topic for everyone everywhere. And more to the point, a lot of people, um, one of the criticisms I heard about is, you know, well, if bishops keep doing this, they're making the problem worse. You know, they're driving the wedge deeper. They're, you know, it feeds this sort of narrative of slow motion schism between the Germans and people who dig what they're selling and what you might call Catholics. Um, and and I understand that concern that you know the more you talk about you can you can sort of talk a schism into being if you like, but the reality is, for all the reasons you just discussed, there's a need in justice and a need in with the care of souls for bishops to address this, and if you don't want to have a sort of emerging confederation of bishops across the world opposing the German synodal process, there's only one way you can avoid that, which is one voice needs to speak to and about the German synodal way and the behavior of the German bishops conference and shut them down. And that is the Bishop of Rome. And I mean, the Bishop of Rome has cautioned, corrected, warned, um, you know, made it very clear. He doesn't support the German synodal way or its conclusions as how it's going about things, but he has not acted in a definitive manner to stop them. And yeah, if, he, if, but, but if, the, if he's not going to, then the, the inevitable, Counterpoint is, well, someone is, you know, other people are going to have to fill the silence and say, well, okay, in the absence of Rome, you know, doing something, I have to be clear from my own people. This is, this is how it is. Okay. So I think that's right. So there's two parts and I agree with both of them. The part that you're pointing, which is that bishops are legitimate teachers in their own diocese, the proper pastor of their own diocese. They have a responsibility for their own people to teach about the, the problems of um, something which has universal applicability, which is intended to have universal applicability and which will inevitably sort of arise in their diocese. I agree with that. I would also say uh, that it's true that bishops, that the College of Bishops is is a a moral person and um, unity of that moral person is a, is a fundamental uh, ecclesiastical value, um, at unum sint, as it were. The Lord would wish for us to be one and one element of our oneness is um, the genuine um, oneness the communion of bishops, which is um, uh, hierarchical, sacramental, but also doctrinal. And so bishops have a responsibility to aim for ecclesiastical unity because it is the, the, the nature and mission of the church to, to desire ecclesiastical unity, including is doctrinal unity. So there's a so every bishop has a vocation not only to his diocese, but to the common good of the universal church. Every bishop is a bishop of the universal church and called to work towards the unity of the universal church, whether that means common fraternity and solidarity, a, a, a unicity of apostolic action, or a proper sort of engagement, admonishment, exhortation, refutation of, um, of uh, theological issues which aim to threaten both the doctrinal communion of the church and the sort of effective communion of the church. So I agree with you about that. But the Pope, you, you, you pointed out that the Pope has not, uh, has sort of uh, spoke and offered some commentary on um, on the German Synodal Way, and some of it quite strong. And the Pope's Curie has done that. Some of it quite strong to say, you know, this is not ecclesiologically valid. This is a problem. But the Germans have altogether been undeterred by that and said, okay, thank you. We're going to continue to do what we're going to continue to do, to the point where they're not only passing documents saying things like, okay, the CDF said that there can't be liturgical blessings for same-sex couples or couples who are otherwise 
living in a domestic situation, which is um, a proximity of marriage, but not actually marriage. The CDF, in fact, said that that's impossible for the church. This is not a, um, a disciplinary matter, but a kind of a, 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 a theological doctrinal yeah. matter, right? A theological impossibility. And yet the German bishop said, okay, well, we passed a document calling for that. Not only did we pass a document calling for that, we're going to do it. We're inviting people to come and have not, liturgical blessings. Not only blessings we are going to, Jesus. we are doing it. We are doing it. Right. Okay, they've, fair they've, enough. The two bishops, including the president and vice president of the German Bishops Conference, have come out and said, such blessings are happening in Germany. They are happening in our diocese. They are happening in our parishes. And we will continue to do it. We want to bring it out into the light. This is the German gambit, is the CDF you know, says, you can't do that. It's impossible. They said, well, it can't be impossible because we're already doing it. Ha. So to your point, um, bishops are speaking into it because the Pope is not speaking into it um, or has spoken into it, but has spoken into it as a kind of commentator to say, hey, this is not ecclesiologically valid. Hey, this causes great concern. This causes, but not in a manner of governing, right? Has not done a thing um, to respond to this thing, which is causing a rupture in ecclesiastical union in which um, people are doing things which the church, which is impossible for the church to do. Arguably that constitutes a kind of um, not only schism, but a kind of, um, I don't know. Is, is it it a contempt for the teaching office well, of the church. Right. But my question is, does it, is it a kind of a sacrilege to simulate a sacrament in the, simulate something akin to a sacrament in the way that the church says definitively you can't? I, I, I think it's a question worth asking. So all of these things. And the Pope is sort of speaking as a commentary, you know, commentator or, or, or critic. And that's a point of frustration for you and for other bishops. And that's why they're um, speaking out, you say. That's why that precise situation is why I'm not expressly enthusiastic or why I w- would raise questions about the Kevin, the Bishop Kevin Rhodes approach to Notre Dame because I see a precise parallel. Mm, yes. Uh, in, in Fort Wayne, South Bend, um, and Bishop Kevin Rhodes is a bishop whom we've had, we've interviewed, I think we've had podcast special episodes of interviewing and we've interviewed him many times on the thing. Um, he's done some very sterling work at the USCC. Yeah, he's done some. He's done some things that I think many people have recognized are important, including really aiming to find consensus on the Eucharistic coherence document after extraordinary division over it. Um, Bishop Kevin Rhodes is not only the principal teacher of his diocese, he's the principal governor of his diocese. And so um, when uh, a juridic person, well, the apostolate of a juridic person, a Catholic reality in his diocese, um, when a Catholic reality in his diocese um, does something which, in his view, contravenes its mission and identity in a manner that undermines ecclesiastical unity and encourages indifference to or, towards or contempt for the faith, it would seem that, in a parallel manner, weighing in as a sort of commentator to say, hey, I don't think this is in accord with the mission, is a step, but not the fullness of Episcopal responsibility in that in that situation. The question is, will Bishop Rhodes move from commentator or critic to governor, um, which is to say, admonish, exhort, not just admonish and exhort Notre Dame, but um, warn and sanction as appropriate, exercise the governing function of his office in the same way that one has asked, will the Pope do this with regard to Germany? Well, exactly. But okay, so so walk us through it. What what tools are in the box for a diocesan bishop for, I mean, Notre Dame is not a diocesan university. There are such things as diocesan Catholic universities. Seton Hall is not just a diocesan university. I mean, it is a diocesan university, but it's not even, it's more than, I think it's entirely bound up in the, in the person of the archbishop. So you have diocesan Catholic universities and there's a particular role for the local bishop there, but the university of Notre Dame is not, is not that it's run by a religious order, right? Right. Is it? So that, or is it a lay board? That, um, I don't know. Yeah, it is. The University of Notre Dame is run by a self-perpetuating board, many of whose members are members of the Congregation of the Holy Cross, whose president is a con- member of the Congregation of the Holy Cross, but which does not fall under the direct governance, which does not fall as, an, as a sort of immediate apostolate of the Congregation of the Holy Cross would fall under the sort of hierarchical leadership structures of the Holy Cross. In other words, you know, we've talked about this before, but there's a kind of divestiture whereby rather than being an apostle of the Holy Cross entrusted to some administrator who is accountable immediately to a superior, you have instead a self-perpetuating board, many of whose members are, are priests of the Holy Cross, whose president is a priest of the Holy Cross, but whose function is perceived to be outside of the structure of sort of hierarchical jurisdiction. Okay, so you have a, a, a university that claims for itself in the, the name... In the Holy Cross tradition. In the, 
um, which claims for itself the title Catholic in the words of the law. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can call it an autonomous university. I think is that is that useful? It doesn't. Yeah, it's not under. So. It's not under the governance of a religious order. It's not under the immediate jurisdiction as a diocesan ministry of the local bishop. No, but it is identified as a Catholic university and therefore subject to the governance of ex corde ecclesia. I mean, that's where look, I was. Going I would with. argue that that's where I was going with. So okay, so under ex cordia and under the law, what what can a bishop do? What is his what is his function with regard to a university like Notre Dame in his backyard, and what can he do from a governing perspective? Because I mean, I think. I think intuitively a lot of people would would assume that the bishop doesn't have a, a legal role with a, a Catholic school, a Catholic university that isn't his. So the bishop governs, yeah. So what does the bishop govern? So there are, I think, three things. One, compliance of Notre Dame with the dictates of Ex Corte Ecclesia, the requirement that professors of sacred sciences obtain a sort of theological mandatum. And if he wanted to, he could issue effectively a kind of prohibition against teaching for those who have not obtained a sort of theological mandatum, a you know, a rescript from him permitting them to teach in a Catholic university in his diocese. We'll talk about what Notre Dame would do after, but that's one. Two, it seems to me that he possesses authority over the celebration of um, public liturgies at Notre Dame, liturgies that are not celebrated in the in within the context of the Holy Cross community, in and for the Holy Cross community. He exercises authority over the liturgies and sacred spaces of the University of Notre Dame, such that he can regulate them, permit them, or prohibit them. They, not, they do have a very big basilica them. there. They do. And then three, he exercises authority over the designation of the thing as a Catholic university. Because even if it is in fact Catholic, which it is by virtue of this association uh, with the Holy Cross, it can't identify itself as Catholic if the, if the local ordinary prohibits it from doing so. So... All of those things, very honestly, are in the toolbox of what bishops have to work with universities in their dioceses. They only have nuclear weapons. Um, you know, we have talked a lot about how diocesan bishops can engage with priests in a manner uh, that is a manner of graduated discipline and the value of graduated discipline. I don't know if we've talked so much about it on this show, but we used to talk about it a lot on an old show that we had that was exactly the same as this, except I had a desk. And um, what we talked about on that show was the value of bishops engaging with priests who were you know, stepping out of the, the ideal of priestly life um, in a manner which extended graduated mechanisms of discipline for them. First, I might warn Father, as I need to, and then I might give Father, because of some bad behavior, a kind of small fine, and then I might give Father some small um, penalties and prohibitions, all of which are intended to correct his behavior before they get so far out of control that the only options that I have are like to laicize him or to remove him from ministry, you know, indefinitely and for the rest of his life. And anyone who's a parent knows that graduated discipline is a good thing. But a bishop, as it happens, as I see it, and people might disagree, but as I see it, bishops have very few graduated modes of discipline. They only have these big things, a prohibition on the sacred science faculty, you know, the faculties of theology and philosophy. Which seems unfair teaching. in this case, because it's not the faculty of philosophy right. or theology Precisely. that's creating right. the problem. It's the Department Precisely. of Gender Studies, Gender Relate. I don't know. Yeah, Gender Studies, I think. Um, I thought we agreed, I thought we abolished gender. I thought that was a thing. So how can you study a thing that doesn't exist? I, I don't know. No, we haven't abolished gender. We haven't? I thought... No. Oh. A prohibition on... Um, but that was like... I feel like that's a comment that a grandpa would write on Facebook. Like, well, I thought we didn't have gender anymore. Dang it. You know, well, I like, thought that's what the kids well were all about. Really, was there's no, everyone's no, it's not, fluid. It's not. It's not. It's not. But even the notion of gender fluidity is a kind of philosophy of gender, isn't it? Is it? Even I don't you know. Like we do. Okay. I so wear it. pants. That's really as into, into, into okay, gender as I get. Okay. <laughs> you really are. Like, this is like old man yells at clouds today. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, so one, the you know this quad nuclear option of the prohibition of the teaching faculties of of theology and philosophy and other sacred sciences, which is again not impacting the people who are impacted by this, or two, the profound restriction of liturgies in some way, the the stripping of the altar, so to speak, a, a disapproval for the reservation of the blessed sacrament or something like that. Now, the funny thing about that is that that doesn't really punish the people who did the thing either, because. I'm not sure that the liturgical life of the university is immediate, of immediate concern to them, but it does. It strikes me as unlikely that the people who invited an abortion doula to speak are also daily mass attendees. Right. 
But it does put pressure, of course, on the administrator. It would put extraordinary pressure on the administrators of the university to do something about this because it would be a, an international story if the University of Notre Dame couldn't reserve the Blessed Sacrament or have mass on campus or these kinds of things. So that's two. Three, a restriction on the use of the term Catholic so that Notre Dame couldn't identify itself as a Catholic university. Again, that would not that would be an extraordinary kind of pressure on the administrators of the university to do the thing that the bishop wanted. It would be it's a kind of course of power and, and intended to provoke a kind of behavior in the administrators. But again, that would be an international story. You can imagine, by the way, that in any of these circumstances Notre Dame would 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 put out a statement that says, We respect Bishop Rhodes immensely. We're so grateful to have him as a partner. However, as a matter of conscience, we need to do the thing that our alumni and, and faculty and trustees and the Holy Cross Fathers all believe is right. And while we will be making a recourse to the Vatican on Bishop Rhodes' decision, we'll continue in conscience to do these things. So the coercive behavior would probably be a standoff. And Bishop Rhodes probably knows that, you know, he'd be rolling the dice in Rome to some extent on whether or not he'd win. Okay. So, well, hang on. So let, let's let's refocus. You started off talking about this by saying, in in the same way that people would like to see Pope Francis act against the German bishops, because there needs to be acts of. You think I've talked myself out of my position, effectively? Well, I, I'm. It's not that you've talked yourself out of it, but you do seem to have demonstrated fairly clearly <laughs> why why Bishop Rhodes would be ill advised, or at least entirely justified in looking at all of the practical tools in his box and saying, well, "I can't use any of these." So what is he supposed to do? If if an op-ed is not enough, if an op-ed is not practical enough, um, doesn't actually do more than express an opinion when the role of the diocesan bishop is not to just have an opinion about what's going on in his backyard, um, what what can he do? Well, I don't think that he, I don't think it would be ill-advised necessarily to do those nuclear option things if a university, I'm not saying this about Notre Dame, but if a university is sort of continually contumacious in scandal, it would be a gigantic thing for a bishop to exercise one of those nuclear options, and the Catholic world would be talking up a storm about it, and all of these things. Um, you know, it would be Cordelion and Pelosi asking a certain, in, in actually in, in, in scale and magnitude. But it might also I think be, be a bigger. matter of yeah, it'd probably be bigger. But Let's it might be honest, also Notre be Dame football of, is more important than the Speaker yeah. of the House in American Catholicism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it might also be a manner of. Um, of speaking prophetically and those things, and the bishop has to weigh those things. But what we haven't talked about, what we've been talking about thus far is, does the bishop have anything between a column, a newspaper column, and um, you know, not allowing the university to be Catholic or reserve the Blessed Sacrament anymore? What we haven't talked about is the possibility of sanctions for the faculty who have done the thing or the administrators who have allowed the thing. So if I, if I use my position at the University of Notre Dame to... Um, do something which incites um, grave doubt or hatred against Catholic doctrine by, um, as which is Bishop Rhodes' position on what happened when they invited the abortion doula to come and give a sort of uncontested, unrebutted presentation on reproductive justice and it's important and these kinds of things. It does seem to me that the bishop is able to warn the person who made that decision, in as much as they're Catholic and therefore subject to ecclesiastical law, that they themselves are in the proximate occasion of committing a delict. And it may be that personal sanctions for those who occupy offices in kind of wayward Catholic universities or Catholic universities which have wayward elements is what which would also be a gigantic thing. You know, South Bend Bishop says gender studies chair is in danger of excommunication. That would also be a gigantic thing, but it does seem to me to be a mechanism provided for by the church's law for correcting this rather than merely criticizing it. I don't think I've ever heard you float as a practical option available to bishops the excommunication of anyone. <laughs> That's not true. No, it is true. Um, I'm, I'm not saying you've never done it ever. I'm saying this is the first time I've heard you do it. Um, you, you tend to be very much on the other side of the ball on these things and say, well, you can't do that. You'd have to prove it. And you can't, you know. You- I just don't like latex intensity penalties. I, I don't like latex intensity penalties. I think they're very difficult to prove, I think. but But this would not be that. This would be effectively a canonical warning or precept saying if you keep doing this thing you will be sanctioned and if the law means anything in the life of the church then there has to come a point it would seem to me where one transitions from criticism to governance in the same way that if i just if my children are doing all kinds of things that are potentially dangerous to them and other children and i just stand on the side of the playground saying well i really 
I don't think that's in accord with the mission of this playground. Sometimes you got to you know, get at your a belt. Certain point, at a, well, no, I don't think that. And I think you're going to get a lot of hate mail for that. that was I a don't think joke. That. It was a um, joke. But sometimes you have to get, you have to act in authority. If you're at a certain point, I'm not saying this about Bishop Rhodes. I'm, we're talking about this in principle. But at a certain point, if one perceives that the whole of his role is criticism instead of correction. Yeah, exhortatory instead of correction. One has to ask if he's been negligent in the administration of his duties. Certainly that would be the case for parents. No, I mean, certainly that would be the case for parents. If I'm standing on the side of the playground offering a commentary on the the things that my children are doing that put them and other people in danger, but I'm not at any point intervening, I don't don't think anyone would um, hesitate to say that I had been negligent in the administration of my office of parent. And again, I'm not saying this about Bishop Rhodes, who is a person who I think is trying to do, but I do think this is the crisis of penal law in the church, which we've talked about many, many times, and which Pope Francis himself has talked about. And Pope Francis says the real problem with uh, with the law in the church is that bishops don't use it. They tend to treat a lot of kinds of clerical misbehavior. I mean, he said this very, very concretely when he promulgated the new book six, two years ago now. The real problem is, Pope Francis says, bishops have treated criminal behavior like sickness, and... That's true, but it might also be a problem if bishops treat behavior which contravenes the church's law as kind of the material for cultural criticism instead of the material for the application of of ecclesiastical discipline. I would agree with that. He certainly has said that, and you know, I I, I too hope the Pope will um, continue to say strong things about it, and and perhaps even apply um, the the, the <laughs> medicine of disciplinary law, not just the but you know, to things like substitutos who you know hack people's phones willy-nilly um but we can we can talk about that after the break edward decided excellence catholic media is a print media company that specializes in community and parish magazines there are parishes all over the country which have partnered with decided excellence catholic media to publish their own parish magazine i'm told that parishioners love them why because the magazine communicates the good works of the parish it strengthens community and this is really 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 cool the Decided Excellence Catholic Media Magazines have even brought parishioners back to Mass. Yeah, and I mean, listen, I like this idea. The more I read about it, the more I think about it, the more I like the idea of, you know, we have working in the Catholic media space, we spend a lot of time talking about the decline of print media and the decline of Catholic media outlets generally, and the folding of things like diocesan newspapers and stuff. And the thing that we've always said about local Catholic media is it's an apostolate for the community and it's also it serves the function of building up the the local body of the church and you know what what decided excellence is is offering really is is a way of making that a lived reality at the parish level and i think it's great and you know because it is a, a physical magazine you can choose who you they send it out to so you don't have to wait for someone to pick it up at the back of mass like a parish bulletin or whatever so you can reach uh lapsed parishioners People who don't go to mass, you can cast the net wider. You can go to people who aren't, you know, registered parishioners necessarily, or just but people who live in the area can become a sort of physical tool of evangelization. That way, you know, everyone likes to do the pivot to online media, and Lord knows that's how I make my living. But you know, the the wonderful thing about a a magazine, um, actual print media, is that you don't get caught in an algorithm. You don't have to worry about does this fit in a tweet? Uh, you know, does it going to catch the right Facebook wave? All that stuff. I think it's cool. I'm I'm unapologetically sentimental and romantic about print media, and I like this. I'm not only sentimental and romantic. I'm convinced that at the local level and for local purposes, it works. Why? Okay, because every magazine from Decided Excellence Catholic Media features an actual family from the actual parish people who you see at mass or people who others see at mass or see in the neighborhood or see at the grocery store. It's like, wow, I'm learning about these people in the practice of their faith. And um, modern man listens more willingly to witnesses than to teachers. And so here are witnesses in the community. Paul VI said that. Um, Decided Excellence Catholic Media Magazines can also feature and highlight other parish ministries. The parish can produce its own kind of content on evangelization and catechesis. And that can be supplemented with um, all kinds of resources from the Decided Excellence uh, Library with resources from Bishop Robert Barron, Scott Hahn, Relevant Radio, and a lot of other resources as well. Here's what happens. 
the editorial and design team from Decided Excellence can guide a parish staff or a parish volunteer through a publication process each month and help ensure that the content in a Decided Excellence Catholic Media Parish magazine is professional and attractive. Uh, a parish representative, whether that's a staff person or a volunteer, is trained to organize content to send things off to the Decided Excellence team of designers and editors who make sure that a beautiful, high-quality magazine is assembled and then sent um, as per the decisions of the parish. So, decidedexcellence.com slash parish, decidedexcellence.com slash parish. Go there, learn more, talk to your pastor, talk to your parish staff, talk to the people who are decision makers about these things, uh, because we really think, and we think this, that the Decided Excellence Catholic Media Project um, is a cool thing for parishes to invest in in order to build and facilitate the community of the parish. Decided excellence, Catholic media. It's decidedly excellent. I knew you were going to do that. Okay, JD, so we've we've talked about... Are you hosting this episode? I love it. I, I kind of am. I'm steering it. I, well, the thing is, I got a lot of mail. I got a lot of mail over the last few weeks about the podcast. None of it was critical of your hosting duties, but you know, we had this sort of dark night of the soul episode where we're both feeling kind of down. I did too. All I got was encouragement. Oh, I didn't get that. that. Um, I got the other stuff. (laughs) Um, And then we'd had another one where we talked about, uh, Oh, time out, time out. Are you getting mail that says I'm being being a host of the show? Not, not at all. Okay. Okay. You would tell me that. Yes, I would. Oh, I, are you kidding me? I'd forward it to you immediately and I'd laugh. Um, no, what it's I It's hard to be host. Undoubtedly. And again, no one is criticizing your hosting. <laughs> no one is criticizing your hosting, JD. But we had this sort okay. of Dark Night of the Soul episode. And then we had we one did. where we talked about, I can't remember what, St. Patrick's Day or something like that. Um, we tried to do a very, you know, consciously upbeat episode. And, you know, and, and I got a lot of people who just said, you know what, guys, could you? And someone actually wrote this in, in a very kind, very thoughtfully phrased, um, very supportive tone saying that they were a long-time listener, long-time subscriber, they were going to continue to be a subscriber to the pillar no matter what and they um you know they very much valued everything we do and it was they were extremely kind and gracious and everything but they said you know would you mind letting me know if you ever intend to talk about the news again on your show Oh you so, did get an email that said I don't keep wasting my time listening to you to and we've just been talking on. about the news. We've been talking about the news. I think very compellingly for the lion's share of this episode. Have we not? We have, and I'm that. But you said, "Am I hosting this episode?" And I said, "Not intentionally, but I am trying to keep us news focused for the for the edification and delight of those correspondents of mine who would like a little more um, hard content, hard news content okay. in the show this week." So, is there? M- yes, I more news that we're going to talk about because yes. I have a thing. Okay, go well, ahead. We're going to talk about more news. And this is not going to be we're going to we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about the Sustituto of You're the You're talking service. about it, we're talking about it. We're talking about the Sustituto Archbishop Edgar Pinapara, who on March 17th in Vatican Court was asked if he had instructed the chief of police in Vatican City then to electron place under electronic surveillance the director general of the IOR, of Vatican Bank, because the guy had had the temerity to reject very, very dodgy loan application for 150 million bucks. And he said, yeah, I did it and I do it again. And I tell me I'm not crazy for being absolutely on fire that this happened. And I mean, I just, I can't get over no, this. Is, this is a very, very big deal. There's no way in which this is not a very, very big deal. So again, uh, Archbishop Edgar Peña Pera, the sustituto of the Vatican City of the Vatican Secretary of State, effectively sustituto is kind of like he he manages the Pope's day to day obligations and affairs. He he's kind of the Pope's chief of staff. Think Leo McGarity, but Leo McGarity would never do this. Okay, so uh, Archbishop Edgar Peña Pera was in court last week in the Vatican sprawling financial trial, and uh, he was asked, um, "Is it true that you ordered?" the Vatican Gentarms, the National Police of Vatican City State, to electronically monitor the phone of, uh, to, 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 to observe, um, to spy upon, and we know that it was because we have seen the previous reporting on it that we know that this involved the electronic monitoring of stone, to spy upon a, the director of the IOR, the Institute for the Works of Religion, the major bank of the Vatican City State and the Roman Curia and the church and, and her many apostles worldwide, is it true indeed that you ordered effectively spying on him? And he said, yeah, I, I, I did. And I also paid I, a, a, a private a, contractor in Italy. Right. They did the same thing. 
Right. But that was, that's not all. I, you know, I also had paid, I also had ordered and he said, well, maybe I ordered it. You know, <laughs> I also had ordered uh, a, pro, a retired Italian intelligent agent, Italian, you know, federal intelligent agent uh, to also monitor him. And then I transferred information about his phone and other things so that he could be hacked and spied upon. Um, yeah. I, I went ahead and ordered that too. Cause, but it's good because I wanted to make sure I did it because I wanted to make sure he wasn't working with the bad guys, the guys who we say were extorting us in this financial deal. So, I mean, right? Yeah. Okay. So, but that—that that is, thank you. That's that's a very big deal. It's a fa- it is abusive any- office. It is illegal. It is a violation well, of Italian law because he paid an Italian citizen to do this in Italy, and it's a violation of Vatican City law because he ordered an extrajudicial wiretap without a warrant. I mean. It, the fact that Domenico Gianni, the former head of the Vatican um, City Gendarmes, appears to have basically not complied or refused to hand over what he had um, to what it, what he got for all this to Pina Parra, because that's what Pina Parra says. You know, what did he give you? Well, he didn't actually give me anything. But that's beside the point. Like, this is abusive office. This is this is a criminal offense. And this is the number... It is the admission of... Let's just say this. It is the admission of... Because I think we should make sure that we're... One thing that I think is good about us is I think we should make sure that we're measured and even about the way that we talk about this. It does seem to be the admission of a set of actions which directly contravene the law of the Italian Republic and the Vatican City State. But it's not just the admission that he did it. It was his defiant statement to the judges that, and I would do it again. That's the part that bothers you. Yeah. Like, I don't understand how this guy can continue in office. This is nuts. If the chief of, if the White House chief of staff got up and said, yeah, I told the CIA to, you know, put the director of the Fed or no, not even Fed, because this is a real, this is a retail bank we're dealing with. Put the, you know, the director of, you know, mortgage lending for Citibank under electronic surveillance because he denied me a loan for a special project I wanted to do. And I do it again because you know what? I am the law. It's like. You would not expect them to, their feet would not touch the ground before they were kicked out of the building, let alone, you know, facing criminal charges and stuff. Once again, if this were happening with the officials of any other government in any other state in the world, it would be front page news from Le Monde to the New York Times to the Sydney Morning Herald. Everyone will be talking about this. Like, can you believe what is going on here? But for some reason, everybody just kind of goes, oh, well, that was awkward. We'll see what we'll talk about next. I like it just drives me. I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. <laughs> Why, Ed, um, what is your best speculation on this? So you have been vexed now for a couple of weeks about this situation. But what what is your best guess or assessment about the reason why the Holy Father has not intervened or Pietro Perlin, for that matter, the Secretary of State of the, of the Holy See, has not intervened? I mean, you, you keep saying nobody wants to touch it, but what what do you think that is behind that uh i think there are competing things there's so for pope francis he already has his previous substitute on trial for abusive office embezzlement fraud conspiracy um witness tampering various other things in pillar reader cardinal angel bet you so to lose one substituto to abusive office criminal charges is a misfortune to lose two begins to look like carelessness um the promoter of justice for Vatican City, Alessandro Raging Bull Didi, uh, has been more or less pretty clear um, that he's happy to indict a cannoli if it looks at him wrong. You know, he's he's pursuing a criminal investigation against the former General Libero Maloney, even as Libero Maloney is trying to sue for wrongful dismissal the Secretary of State. And basically deliver the goods that Didi needs to convict all of the people he's charging in the Vatican financial trial. But, you know, he's just that he's that kind of wild card dude that he just, you know, someone floats across his radar. He just opens an investigation and tries to bring charges. Um, And I suppose it's possible that at this point he feels like maybe his plate is full and that it would make his position a little less tenable if he really is just indicting absolutely everyone working at a senior level in the Holy See. Um, that's a possibility. Uh, Cardinal Paroline, I'm not surprised he hasn't done anything. Cardinal Paroline has been pretty clear uh, for a couple of years now, pretty much since October of 2019, uh, when the when the news of the, the sort of London property deal and everything started to break. He's 
uh, after an initial foray of saying, look, yeah, it looks a little weird. We're working to clear it up. And everybody kind of savaged him for that because, you know, his name was in all the documents. It's like, what do you mean you think it's unclear? You, this was your, anyway, since then, he's been very much a sort of hands off. I think he's realized that to the extent to which he's had anything to do with any of this stuff, it has only ever served to, you know, bite him on the nose. So I think he's just keeping clear of it and just said, you know what, this, I'm going to pretend like this isn't in my department and hope it all goes away one day. So do you foresee anything coming? Um, yeah, I do. This, I do think you foresee that, yourself just um, remaining frustrated about it? Gianfranco Mami, the, uh, the director general of the IOR, who was the one placed under extrajudicial surveillance by the Sustituto, I would not be surprised if he files a complaint. If he files a, compla- a criminal complaint with the promoter of justice, his office in Vatican City, I would not be surprised if he files a criminal complaint in the Italian Republic against Pina Parra, because... This is not on, and you know, of all the people in different Vatican departments uh, who have been able to do something over the years and have actually done it, it is it is Mami and Jean Baptiste de Franzu at the IOR who have been the ones who said, "I don't care if people are going to look at us because we're lunatics. We're gonna we're gonna make sure the law is followed." They're the ones who who flagged the London property deal in the first place and went to the Pope and went to Vatican prosecutors and got this investigation started, which led to the trial that Pina Parra was speaking on. Like these are guys, they, they don't screw around and we've heard in court that they've been put under considerable pressure at different times to sort of knuckle under and toe the line and they have not caved. So I, I wouldn't be shocked if they file a complaint, at which point then it's on Didi's desk and he has to decide if he's going to ignore it or if he's going to pursue it. And that's a different calculus to, um, you know, deciding whether he wants to do something sort of sui sponte. Okay, well, we'll be watching. But we can't talk about it anymore. With apologies to your correspondent, I apologize, but we only have a few more minutes of the show, and I would like to share something with you. First of all, uh, Ed, happy birthday. What? No, 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 no. <laughs> Bleep that, Kate. Cut Today it. Is no. not, don't do it. Today is not Ed's birthday. Ed's birthday already passed, which means that you can't wish Ed a happy birthday. He does not wish for you to wish him a happy birthday. His birthday has already passed. But your birthday has passed since the last time that I wished you a happy birthday. So it's an appropriate time for me to wish you a happy birthday. So happy birthday. And given that your birthday passed, I know you don't like anyone to know that you were born. Uh, Given that that happened, guys, please don't wish him a happy birthday. Don't be mad at me. Uh, I have a bit of a gift for you because now I'm going to share with you uh, some gifts sent to us for you uh, by our listeners. And I, I think I have them all. If I missed one, if you don't hear yours, listener, please just send me a note and I'll gladly read some more next week and gladly even play some more next week. But these are, you know, a couple of weeks ago we were talking about the fact that you were illicitly baptized in a snowstorm. Do you recall that? I do. Can you give... The 30-second, and I mean it, the 30-second version of your having been illicitly baptized in a snowstorm kind of deal for those who might have not heard that episode. Effectively, I was baptized not in the diocese in which I was born or in which I lived. Uh, I was baptized in my great-grandparents' living room several states away by a priest in the presence of my parents, godparents, grandparents, great-grandparents. But the event was not recorded in the local parish registry as it should have been. So I was baptized right. not in a church or a sacred space. It was not recorded, and it was not in any of the normal, proper places in which I should have been baptized. It was illicit as hell. Okay, so that's the story. I, I, when you told us about that a couple of weeks ago, I said that it sounds, which it does, like some kind of a country music song and uh, or Johnny Cash song or something, and I invited listeners to compose that song and send it to us, and they have. And uh, I have two songs, which were song sets of song lyrics, which were written, which I will read to you. And uh, we're going to play a little game with them, actually. And it's just a right or wrong game, I suppose. But I'm going to read you uh, two sets of these. Um, well, we asked for song lyrics, but one person, rather than sent us song lyrics, sent us kind of limericks. And the other sent us song lyrics. But one of these was composed with the help of AI, uh, oh, artificial great. intelligence, a bot of some sort. So I'm going to read to you both of these One of them's a synodal things. document, you mean. Yeah, and you're going to decide which one. I mean, I hope you enjoy them both, um, but then when we're done, you're going to have to guess which one was uh, written with the help of AI. So okay. we'll start. Do you want to start with the lyrics or the limericks? Uh, well, let's start with the limericks because I know how you delight in limericks. Okay, I do. Ed was baptized illicit, born in a blizzard, but not invalid, we think, with our gizzard. Whatever the case in that time and place, 
He's just glad I was a priest, not a wizard. Now the cynical grump works at a paper. His nose set to foul ladder and vapor. His writing's top-notch, and he's down to watch all the Vatican financial caper. Do you love it? I, I do like that. That's yeah. very good. That, 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 was, that had uh, some delightful turns in there. Yeah, I liked it very much. Now, on to the lyrics. Uh, I was born in a blizzard on a cold winter night. My mama didn't make it to the hospital on time. She wrapped me in a blanket and she held me to her chest. She whispered, you're my miracle. You're stronger than the rest. I'm a blizzard, baby. I've got ice in my veins. I've seen the worst of weather, but I never complain. I'm a blizzard, baby. I've got fire in my soul. I face the storm of life, but I never lose control. My daddy was a preacher who had secrets of his own. He baptized me in whiskey when no one else was home. Now, this one takes a little literary license, very honestly. He baptized I, I recognize me in, less of the fact pattern of my own life, but it's still cool. I, <laughs> yeah. He baptized me in whiskey when no one else was home. He said, you're my salvation. You're the reason that I live. He taught me how to love and how to forgive. I'm a blizzard, baby. I've got ice in my veins. I've seen the worst of weather, but I never complain. I'm a blizzard, baby. I've got fire in my soul. I face the storm of life, but I never lose control. Now, here comes the bridge. Now, I'm all grown up, and I've seen the world around. I've had my share of heartache, and I've had my share of doubt. But I always remember where I came from and who I am. I'm a blizzard, baby, and I don't give a damn. I'm a blizzard, baby. I've got ice in my veins. I've seen the worst of weather, but I never complain. I'm a blizzard, baby. I've got fire in my soul. I face the storm of life, but I never lose control. Yeah, I'm a blizzard, baby. Nothing's going to stop me now. That's... um. That's powerful. Do you love it? Yeah, that was really something. I mean, that was quite a work. That's uh, there's a lot going on there. That okay, was, so one of these two is a synodal document. You're saying one of these two things was written, as I understand it, with the assistance of an AI chatbot, either the Limericks or Blizzard Baby. I'm gonna say Blizzard Baby. Ding 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 ding! You nailed it. Good job. Both you of know them are why? Awesome, why? Tell me. Because in the Limericks, the line about I'm just grateful it was a priest and not a wizard. That that's too good and too much of a side swipe at you know hippie stuff. Like I don't think Chatbot would have been able to leap across and, and come up with that. Yeah, it was. Very, but they're very both good. very good. I I absolutely enjoyed them both. It was Clifford Haynes who sent us Blizzard Baby. Thank you very much, Clifford Haynes. And it was Tommy Smith who sent us the Ed was baptized as a lizard, born in a blizzard, but not involved. We think with our gizzard limericks. Both of those were very very good. Uh, but our final sort of uh, our final celebration um, comes from Alicia Miller. It's a song called "Lawman for the Lord," and uh, we're going to listen to it because Alicia Miller has produced this song. It's I have I have listened to this when when Alicia and thank you for what is by several lengths the coolest thing anyone has ever done for now, me. Now Alicia I mean, I, Miller wrote the song and sung it. Instruments uh, and production by her sister, Gabby Doran, uh, with the help from her bandmate, Eric Ritland on guitar. Uh, they have a band called Borzer's Labyrinth, if you want to check them out. Um, so uh, Alicia Miller, Gabby Doran, Eric Ritland are going to bring us uh, Lawman for the Lord right after this. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media, Ned and J.D. Production. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. My podcasting partner is uh, Ed Condon, the Lawman for the Lord. And take it away, Alicia Miller. It was a stormy night in the windy city The night he was born His mama cried and his daddy prayed Until the break of morn And as the ice and snow were howling around Every mason in the land went underground And even across the ocean they could hear the sound of a Oh, man. Oh, man.
literal chills, Jim.